Welcome back to Curbside Consults, where we break down the practice-changing research from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm your host today, Dr. Angela Castellanos. I'm a general pediatrician and editorial fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. Here in New England, winter is coming, and with it comes changing seasons, cold weather, and our topic of discussion for today, which is worsening asthma symptoms and asthma exacerbation. Asthma, as you all know, is an important chronic illness in children and adults in the U.S. It affects about 26 million Americans, including 6 million children under the age of 18. Almost half of these patients report one or more asthma exacerbation per year. And severe asthma exacerbations, as we know, lead to missed days of school, missed days of work, hospitalizations, and as much as we try to prevent it, can even lead to death. Studies suggest that asthma exacerbations may lead to progressive loss of lung function and worsening severity of disease over time. So for good reason, we physicians spend a lot of time with these patients to prevent asthma exacerbations before they even start, which leads us to the topic of today's episode. Today on Curbside Consults, we're going to discuss how we can assess if an asthma exacerbation is imminent and can we control worsening asthma symptoms. Can we stop these patients from developing full-blown exacerbations that need steroids and possible hospitalizations? What does the evidence tell us? We are very grateful today to have on our show Dr. Jeff Drazen on the podcast. He is a pulmonologist and critical care physician at the Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. He's a distinguished professor at Harvard Medical School, and he is also the editor-in-chief at the New England Journal of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to be here. You know, asthma goes on vacation in the summer, comes back in the fall and winter. It's here. It's here. So, Dr. Drazen, because I'm a pediatrician, I want to start with a pediatric case to highlight our clinical question. But just so our listeners know, we'll also be discussing some of the literature that talks about worsening asthma symptoms in adults as well. So please stay tuned. So we'll start with our case. Nina is a seven-year-old girl, and she's presenting to clinic today to assess her asthma control. We assess the level of her asthma impairment and risk in order to classify her asthma severity. We ask her a series of questions. We ask her mother a series of questions. And based on the asthma severity classification, we determine she has moderate persistent asthma with moderate risk. She is on a medium dose inhaled glucocorticoid daily. So today she's in our clinic and we see that she has a runny nose and she's with her brother who also has a cough. Her mom tells you that she's been using her albuterol inhaler more frequently in the last few days, especially on the playground when she's been feeling some chest tightness. On physical exam today, she's breathing comfortably on ambient air. Her lungs are clear to auscultation and she has good air entry throughout. We don't appreciate any wheezing on exam today, but we do notice a cough. So to summarize for our listeners, this is a seven-year-old patient. She has moderate persistent asthma, and she's coming to clinic with worsening asthma symptoms. So Dr. Drazen, this is maybe a scenario you've seen frequently in your clinic. How can we assess if an asthma exacerbation is imminent in this patient? What tools do patients and clinicians have to assess worsening asthma symptoms? So the first question I would have asked when I examined the patient to be there with her mother or her father, and I heard no wheezing, I'd say, when not you give her her albuterol last? Because if she was wheezing and was treated, then you're being misled that her lungs sound clear at a time when, in fact, you're just under the halo of her therapy. So if she received her last albuterol within the last three or four hours, I'd wonder whether her chest exam is, in fact, clear. If that's the case, and since you can't either expand or contract time, you begin to wonder, you know, why did they treat her? And is, in fact, something coming? So it's, I think, important to think about this. You ever watch television? Yes, certainly. And you ever watch the weather on TV? Oh, yeah. And they forecast what's going to happen. And when we look at weather forecasting 30 years ago, 
they would sort of say, well, maybe it's going to rain tomorrow, maybe not. We don't know, and we all live with that. And then weather forecasting got better and better and better, and we have these satellite images, and we know what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm going to the baseball game tonight, and I know it's going to rain, but clear up before the game starts. We're not there with asthma exacerbations. Forecasting is not so good. We have someone that develops signs and symptoms. They start to wheeze. They feel a little short of breath. They're beginning to cough more. It's out of the ordinary for them. Is it likely that they're going to have a full-blown exacerbation where they suddenly can't breathe at all? where rescue needs to be imminent, or is this something that's going to pass briefly? We don't know the answer to that, and it's not for the lack of trying. We've looked at thousands of people, and the research world has asked this question. When are you in what we call the yellow zone? When you're in the green zone, everything is good. You're able to contribute to activities of daily life. You use your medications. You are preventative medications on a regular basis, and you don't need a rescue inhaler all the time. When you're in the green zone and you're about out the door and you realize that you left your inhaler in the house, you say, I forget about it, I'm okay. When you're in the red zone, you wouldn't be getting out of the house. It's when you're in the yellow zone, do you know you're in the yellow zone, that you'd go back for your inhaler. Do we have a way of knowing for sure Now, we published an article by Jackson and co-workers, Kids with Asthma, and it's very telling. They had a set of rules to decide when you were in the yellow zone. And in the group that was the control cohort, received nothing other than the standard therapy, 20%, about 20% of those people developed an asthma exacerbation. In the active treatment group, it was more. It was not one out of five, it was one out of three. Now, was that because the treatments for the asthma exacerbation, glucocorticoids, made it worse? I don't think so. I think we were looking at the variance in having a set of premonitory signs and symptoms in a secondary asthma exacerbation. So we don't really know. We can't tell with certainty that you're about to get really sick from your asthma. And so it makes the research difficult because you said, okay, I'm in my yellow zone. I need to do something about this to prevent this from getting really bad. Yet we can't, as physicians, predict this piece of the future that's so critical for our patients. And we desperately need more research about this so we can understand it better. You would think it would be obvious. And I've sat on outline guideline committees. There are things that we pick up on but none of them are so highly predictive that you can bet your outcome on it. I see. So what we as physicians do a lot of the time is go through asthma action plans with patients. That's something that is in the Global Initiative for Asthma Guidelines. And in the U.S., just as you mentioned, we discuss these with patients as being the green zone, which is your asthma is well controlled, you're going out the door, going to the baseball game, and the red zone, as you said, which is when you know things are getting bad. The yellow zone itself, how do you explain to patients the yellow zone? How do you feel like patients understand the yellow zone? So it obviously it depends on the patient. But if you have a patient that has what we call mild to moderate persistent asthma, where they know if they've forgotten their inhaled glucocorticoids for a week in a row, 
but they know they can get away with missing them for a day. And then they're very well attuned to their asthma symptoms. Something pops up that makes their life more difficult, whether it's they start to cough when they're carrying the groceries or whether when they know it's a little cold out and they see the bus and they're going to say, I'm not going to run for it because I'm going to be coughing and wheezing when I hit the bus. Now, research that was done in the 70s and 80s showed that asthma exacerbations start in the most peripheral ways. And patients can't appreciate that. It doesn't really impact their ventilation much. They don't feel it. As asthma exacerbation continues and larger airways are involved, patients become more symptomatic. And there's a wide variation among patients in their ability to detect change in lung function that occurs spontaneously. There's even a wide variation when we're inducing lung function changes for people to make this detection. So we need to know when they're in a yellow zone and we can't define it. So now we're trying to decide, does a treatment work in the yellow zone for something that is difficult to define and it's hard to do? So there are some therapies that we know work if you're not taking inhaled glucocorticoids and you use them on a regular basis, you'll have fewer exacerbations over the long run. We just published last summer articles showing that when you begin to detect this, this is now the patient's sense of it, without a set of specific rules, they started using a combination of inhaled glucocorticoids and a long-acting beta agonist. They were preventing exacerbations. So I think patients can define it. It's like love. You know, you can define it with difficulty, but everybody kind of knows what it is, and different people think of it different ways. And the problem that we have as researchers is that that's not good enough. And when you're writing the research rules, you need to come up with a case definition. But the case definition can't be, gee, when you think it's going to be a problem, you need to do something. So you have to say, I want to look out for things. Look out for whether you're coughing more, whether you can hear audible wheezing, whether your peak flow is diminished, whether there are other aspects of your daily life that you ordinarily can do that require respiratory effort that you now can't that are telling you something. I see. One of the other things, especially in this particular case, so this is a patient with moderate persistent asthma, thinking about our patient Nina who has come in, and she's already on medium-dose inhaled glucocorticoids daily. So when I was in residency, which wasn't too long ago, I would go to the guidelines to see what do I do if I am concerned that she is in this yellow zone as we've discussed. So for the Global Initiative of Asthma Guidelines, so the GINA guidelines, which are a frequently revised set of guidelines from leading asthma experts. In this clinical setting, the GINA guidelines recommend an increase in patients' inhaled glucocorticoid regimen. I know that's the guideline, but what is the evidence behind that recommendation? So the article that we published this past February, February of 2018, by Jackson and coworkers suggests that increasing the inhaled glucocorticoid dose by a factor of five which was somewhat pragmatic because it looked at the availability of inhaled glucocorticoids in inhalers made by GlaxoSmithKline. It was easy to have one that had five times as much as the other. Didn't prevent asthma exacerbations. But the problem is if you ask any asthma doctor, you have a patient and they're on the phone 
the late Al Sheffer, who was uh, one of my teachers, who was an asthma doctor, used to hold asthma phone hours from his home from 4 to 6 in the morning. He would start to tell patients, when you're not feeling well, double, triple, quadruple your dose of inhaled glucocorticoids. And the success rate there was really high, but it wasn't blinded therapy. And there's literature to support this. The Volvoid study that was published in 2001 without a control group showed that if you increase the dose of inhaled glucocorticoids, there were fewer people that went on to a full-blown exacerbation. And I think every asthma doctor, every pediatrician's had this experience. It's when you try to control the variables that you lose that experience. So is that because the thresholds are different? People are willing to start the therapy either earlier or later? Or what happens is that when you start to do this, you begin to comply with your regimen, which you hadn't been complying with before. The editorialist that wrote about the Jackson paper argued that in this pediatric setting, the patient, but you had their parents, who were making sure they were taking their controller regimen on a regular basis. They weren't skipping dose. They weren't going to bed. They weren't going to school. They weren't going to be able to watch TV unless they'd taken their treatment. So that means that when you added more, there was already a background there, and you probably couldn't get a lot more benefit out of it. But in the real world, people skip doses all the time. When was the last time you had to take a medication three times a day and never skipped it, or even twice a day and never skipped it? And so what happens in the real world is I think people become more attuned to both their background and the enhanced regimen, and they get better but we have a very difficult time studying that to show that benefit. And I think that that's where the conundrum lies. We've been discussing studies involving children, but this question has also been researched in adults. One negative study by Harrison and colleagues in 2004 found no difference in asthma exacerbations in the intention to treat or per protocol analysis in asthma exacerbations between placebo and doubling the inhaled glucocorticoid dose. So subsequent studies, researchers thought maybe the dose isn't high enough. In a trial by O'Byrne in 2009, they randomized patients to either placebo or four times the dose of inhaled glucocorticoids. And in this trial, they found no difference in asthma exacerbations between the placebo and the quadrupling of the dose in the intention-to-treat group. But when they only looked at participants who did the study inhaler per protocol, they were able to see the benefit in patients who were on the quadrupled dose. So how do you think about these outcomes? How do you interpret these? So I think it's what separates me from the hat I wear when I'm doing research to the hat I wear when I'm treating patients. When you're treating a patient, you have that specific person in front of you, and you have some general idea about his or her adherence to treatment, their tolerance for either avoiding glucocorticoids or avoiding the consequences of an asthma exacerbation. And you try to come up with something that is personalized for them. There are patients who want to avoid an exacerbation at all costs. So as a physician, we don't think intention to treat versus per protocol. We think, let's play out what we know. We know we may be playing with a placebo effect, or we may be playing with an, a better adherence effect. They may have been missing. You know, they were on these treatments, but they weren't really taking them. And now they've built up the courage to call you. They're being more compliant with their therapy. In my head, I think that there are some things that we do, we've learned from randomized controlled trials that you'd be a fool not to do. For example, 
If you take a patient who's had a coronary event, they'll benefit from low-dose aspirin. There's a lot of data to support that. You'd be a fool not to start a patient on it. Now, whether the patient takes it or not, separate story, but you counsel the patients to do that. But there are lots of things where the data aren't so compelling. Where this one study shows this and one study shows that, and you know that there's a signal here, but it's not a whopper of a signal. And therefore, you have to figure out what's going to work best in this setting with this patient in this circumstance. And to what extent is there an adverse effect? We know with inhaled glucocorticoids and especially with oral glucocorticoids in kids, low doses of oral glucocorticoids, high doses of inhaled glucocorticoids, when they're in a growth phase, make them a little shorter. Every centimeter you lose is not good. And so you want to try to avoid that if possible. How do we get the most for that patient in that setting? So I think it's important for us as physicians to use the data that we have to understand its precision. We're not having engineering drawings for building a skyscraper. The best medicine quite often has to offer our impressionistic drawings. And we take that impression and we try to use it in a way that benefits the patient, fits into his or her lifestyle. And so even though I'm editor of a major medical journal, I think it's important to remember this dichotomy. One time we're trying to gather the evidence that helps our thinking about what to do in a theoretical sense, but we're in an examining room with the patient. We need to do what we think is best in their best interest and tell them why. Absolutely. So for residents reading these articles, for clinicians that are facing this patient, this patient that has come in moderate persistent asthma, and with a concern for an asthma exacerbation, what you're saying is we have studies that show that perhaps increasing inhaled glucocorticoids can help the patient. The evidence isn't perfect, and also the way we're defining that zone is not perfect either. So knowing this, how do we use this evidence? Well, as I said, I use it in a staged way. Most of the time, unless there's some extenuating circumstance, I'll say, look, we're not doing too well, but you're not desperate yet. So let's go up by a factor of four and see how it is in 36 hours. This is Monday morning. See how it is Tuesday night. Tuesday night, you haven't gotten better, so you're feeling better. It's time to start the treatment for a full-blown exacerbation. And what I can't promise you is that if we didn't start that treatment, you were going to have an exacerbation. But the fact that you haven't gotten better suggests that we want to do something so you don't. And have you seen these studies, for example, the Jackson study published in March of 2018? Have you seen how they've shaped practice? Have you heard in your own practice any changes in practice from clinicians? So sometimes we do something because we know it's going to work. Sometimes we do something because we hope it's going to work. And I think people who felt they knew it was going to work now think they hope it's going to work. I used to say, it's going to work. You know, don't worry about it. Call me if you haven't gotten better, but you won't have to call me. I now say, look, this should work, but if it doesn't, we have a backup plan. And I think that that in itself is what the patient wants. They want reassurance that if things don't get better, that they have a way out. So a more practical approach to using the data from this research. And you have a lot of experience reading many clinical trials. If you could design a clinical trial to answer the next question for the yellow zone of asthma, what would be a specific question that you would ask? So the question that I would like to know 
is how good are we at predicting yellow zones? So I would like to get more measurements. And we now have the ability to get from patients using electronic instruments, both uh, lung function and diary symptoms on a relatively regular basis, and by also monitoring their behaviors. So that if somebody who used to be very active is slowing down, we could use the ability to determine whether there are a set of circumstances that predict with high accuracy whether an exacerbation is coming, then I'd be in a much better position to see whether I could give the patient something that would prevent that exacerbation. But right now, it's one out of five to one out of three patients. That's a lot of variance. You couldn't design an airplane with that. So I think our first step is to get a better hold on the yellow zone. Now, the problem with doing that research is that you want to wait for someone to have an exacerbation. And who's got the guts, either patients or physicians, to do research where you see someone getting worse, you think, and you're waiting to see, okay, who's actually going to get worse? So that's going to be a hard study to do. So it may be that the only practical study to do will be to study a strategy of increasing the inhaled glucocorticoids alone at the first sign of a yellow zone as you define it versus implementing therapy versus a stage procedure where you inhaled glucocorticoids for 48 hours followed by oral glucocorticoids if they didn't meet specific improvement criteria. And then you'd have three groups to compare. You'd have the people who got the inhaled glucocorticoids at a higher dose compared to the people who got the oral glucocorticoids versus the people who got the stage procedure. And what I would tell you what happened is that there would be fewer exacerbations in the people who got the oral glucocorticoids. We know that to be the case, but how many doses of that were given that could have been avoided, either by the stage procedure or the inhaled procedure alone? So I would be designing a trial aiming at using those three approaches to see one which of those are the best. And I think we've discussed asthma before, and you speak to this throughout the podcast, the variability of the asthma presentation for patients, how they experience their asthma exacerbations themselves. And even the physiology, the variability of each patient's physiology makes this a very challenging question to ask. And to answer. <laughs> and to answer, exactly. Well, Dr. Drazen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Angie. And remember, when you can't breathe, nothing else matters. So our job is to make sure that the amount of time patients are experiencing that feeling is minimum. Absolutely. In our discussion, we talked about the challenge of predicting asthma exacerbations, the literature behind preventing asthma exacerbations in the setting of worsening symptoms, and practical applications of some of, but certainly not all of the existing literature. So for takeaway points from our discussion, first we talked about the yellow zone, which is when asthma symptoms are worsening, but not quite severe. We talked about how it's hard to define for patients, researchers, and clinicians. And because of this, the research studying increased inhaled glucocorticoid therapy when patients are having worsening asthma symptoms to prevent asthma exacerbations can be challenging to conduct and has several limitations. And thus, the evidence tells us that clinicians should be cautious and consider the clinical scenario when managing patients in the yellow zone and using increased inhaled glucocorticoid dosing as an exacerbation prevention strategy. 
One potential approach we discussed with Dr. Drazen was providing these patients with a plan of two prescriptions, one for a higher dose of inhaled glucocorticoids, often four to five times their usual dose, followed by a short course of oral glucocorticoids if they fail to improve with the increased dose strategy. Well, Dr. Drazen, thank you for joining us and thank you for listening to this episode. Please visit our section on asthma in our internal medicine and pediatric pulmonology rotation prep guides at resident360.nejm.org. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Michael Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to Dr. Angela Chen and Dr. Amanda Fernandez, my co-editorial fellows at the NEJM this year, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. O.P. Hemanvik. Because this is a new series and we're trying something new, we want your feedback. Please email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Leave a message or review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dr. Angela Castellanos, Editorial Fellow at the New England Journal of Medicine. Please join us again for our next episode.